Hi there, I'm Jay Comfrey. This is High Performance. And this time, we welcome Sir Keir Starmer. Being leader of the Labour Party or leader of the opposition is a bit like being the England manager, where everybody can do your job better than you. Everybody's got an opinion on your job that you should be doing. I wouldn't have played him at left back or don't know what that's all about. I know what difficult decisions are and I know they have to be taken. You cannot have a situation where you say, well, that's too difficult. I'm going to walk away from it. That isn't leadership. My mum was very, very ill all of her life and she had this amazing courage and she would always get back up somehow should get back up and get back to her feet and so when I'm in that moment I just there's a bit of me that thinks if if my mum can get up I can get up I didn't grow up thinking I would be or particularly wanting to be an MP it's not about Keir Starmer walking through the door number 10 push to one side what you can push to one side focus on what you're trying to achieve and remember it isn't about you because when you're being subject to that kind of criticism it feels very personal i don't regret very much in life but the last time i saw my dad he was in hospital dying and i walked away and i knew he was going to die and i didn't turn around to go back and tell him what i thought and i should have done Okay, so look, let's just front up right at the very top. We know that this episode will be divisive, okay, because it's about politics and politics is incredibly divisive. But if there's one calling card of the High Performance Podcast, it's that this podcast is about understanding. It's not about opinion. So do you know what, regardless of your political persuasion, how can it ever be a bad thing to know more and understand more about the man who could be the next British Prime Minister? Over the next hour or so, you're going to hear Sir Keir talking about his upbringing, the way he parents, how he leads, how he builds teams, the mistakes he's made, the challenges he faces, and of course, his hopes for the future. Now, I want to be really clear, okay, no topics were off limits. Myself and Professor Damien Hughes went at this interview, as we do every single other conversation on the High Performance Podcast, just with an interest to understand the person. In fact, that was the only rule. This was a conversation about a person not about politics. So listen, I want you to do something that we talk about so often on this podcast. Leave your preconceptions at the door. Open your mind and join me in welcoming Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, the leader of the Labour Party, and potentially the next leader of Great Britain to the High Performance Podcast. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, Kia, welcome to High Performance. Thank you very much. Let's just be sort of really clear at the top what this is about. This is a conversation about a person, right? Not a political conversation, no talk about policy, no point scoring, nothing like that. We're not in Westminster now. This sounds very good. This is just (laughs) the truth, really, about who you are, where you've come from, and where you would one day love to be. Does that sound okay? That sounds good. Good. So to that end, I read um, an interview recently, actually, with your deputy, Angela Rayner, and she said she overshares, but Kia undershares. So first of all, how do you feel having a conversation like this? I'm getting used to it. It's the sort of thing that... Um, I felt very uncomfortable about, if I'm honest, a few years ago. I do think it's really interesting to explore more where people come from. And, you know, I think some of the things that Angela said about oversharing and undersharing are just a fascinating insight into different personalities. Why do you think you, you sort of struggled with it early on? Because I've never spent my life sort of analysing what happened when I grew up, what I felt about it. I'm asked now much more about my mum and dad than I ever was in other jobs that I've done. And I've always been sort of very focused on an outcome. You know, what am I trying to achieve? Where's the goal? How do we get to that goal? Rather than having that conversation with myself about what does this all mean? I think Angela was spot on, by the way. It was such an interesting observation. It was a very Angela observation. She's got brilliant antennae. Um, about her oversharing and me undersharing and sort of holding quite a lot back inside me. And I think if you hold quite a lot back inside you, you don't particularly want to do podcasts like this. Right. (laughs) Well, we're going to delve deep today. Let's start the podcast with the way that we always do. In your mind, what is high performance? I think high performance, for me, is about outcomes. It's about whether you can achieve that outcome, usually difficult outcomes, um, and that is high performance. I think it's probably changed over the years. I mean, I obviously came through being a lawyer, then ran a public service, now into politics. So it changes, but it's definitely outcomes-focused for me. I mean, what I would say, just to qualify that, and it's, it's not really what a difference to what I think is important in terms of high performance, What I've learned along the road, as it were, is you can achieve the same things in different ways. So I think there's a point in our lives where we think the only way to achieve something is to behave in this way or to be focused in that way. The more I've seen people lead teams, the less convinced I am about that. I think you can achieve the same things in different ways, different styles. Um, The other thing I'd say is I think high performance is different in different places. Mm. Uh, it depends what people are doing. My sister, for example, is a care worker. That's a high-performance job in a completely different way. So for me, it's about outcomes. I think that re- that reflects the job I'm doing rather than a fixed view on what high-performance is. So given the different roles that you've had in your career, Keir, from being a lawyer to leading a public service to now being the head of a political party... What are the changes that you've incorporated along those different roles that still allow you to get to those outcomes? I think one of the biggest changes for me has been the scale. So when I, to give you an example, when I started as a lawyer, 
I was a barrister, therefore an advocate. So you're pretty much on your own with quite a small team that you would put together for the purpose of a particular case. You'd be arguing a case on behalf of somebody. You'd probably have a team of um, maybe three or four people totally focused on that case. The team only stayed together for the purpose of that case. It broke up afterwards because you go on to a different case. So it's relatively small scale, very, very focused, only one outcome that matters, which is the particular case you're doing, nothing broader than that. I then moved on to sort of, if you like, strategic litigation, which is instead of doing each case one by one, can't we sort of tackle an issue in a bigger way and form bigger teams? But I'd say that there were two or three turning points, really important developments for me. The first was um, having gone from sort of individual cases to strategic cases. Um, one of the strategic cases we did, for example, was challenging the death penalty in countries, other countries around the world. But then I went to work in Northern Ireland on implementing some of the Good Friday Agreement proposals, which were, in my case, about changing the police, the RUC, the um, uh, Ulster Constabulary in um, Northern Ireland, into the police service of Northern Ireland. So this was the idea that a, a different police service was going to emerge after the Good Friday Agreement that would be much more transparent, human rights compliant, etc. And up until that point in my life, I'd been the individual lawyer sort of r railing against um, the system from the outside. And this was my first opportunity to work with the police and the policing board changing from the inside. And that was a really insight. You know, how do you affect change? Um, a different kind of leadership altogether from the inside, because then you've got to get people on your side. You've got to influence them, change the way they think, and change, in that case, the nature of the police service in Northern Ireland. After that, I became Director of Public Prosecutions and headed up the Crown Prosecution Service. And I had you know, seven or 8,000 staff. Now, that's a big thing when you're used to having a team of four or five. And suddenly I had to think, well, how do you influence someone on the, the – this was – we had about 100 offices across England and Wales. How do I influence what somebody does the other side of the country? What are the leadership behaviours that have to change in order to do that? So I think there were, there were big changes along the way. And Can then we dive into what they are before we move to the next one? Well, I think the – the first, which was working with the police service in Northern Ireland, is yeah. how how do you operate in such a way that you can uh, make sure that people have trust and confidence in what you're doing in such a way that they will want to change the organisation in which we're all working? Yeah. That is a very different skill to arguing a case in court. And then this question of how do you affect change on us at scale, which was something which I hadn't done before. Were you bringing in the change or were you trying to get them to suggest what the changes should be? How What was the... A bit of both. So if you right. take the Crown Prosecution Service, um, I knew it had to change and I wanted it to be much more open and transparent and that when we were taking decisions, we would explain them. Um, so to give you an example of what I mean by that, um, some of the most difficult decisions were in areas which were people had very strong and different views. So, for example, assisted suicide. One of the first cases that landed on my desk was a case of the mother of a person called Dan James. Dan was a fantastic rugby player um, and um, he was up at Loughborough and he was on the verge of getting into the England team when a, uh, a scrum collapsed on him on a rainy Saturday afternoon and um, he was very, very badly injured, paralysed from the neck down and um, in a really, you know, was at Stoke Mandeville for a while but never um, recovered and got more and more 
depressed, didn't want to live, didn't want to live. And um, his mum would fight with him about that, as you can imagine. But in the end, he decided to take his own life by going to Dignitas. And his mum went with him. Um, and when she got back, she was arrested for a city suicide. Um, and this came across my desk as director of public prosecution. And I took the view that it wasn't in the public interest for her to be prosecuted for assisting in his suicide in the particular circumstances. Once I'd made that decision, I realised we had to go further than that, which was to open up the whole decision making around assisted suicide to the public so people could have confidence in what we were doing. So I wanted to bring change. And amongst the change I wanted at the Crown Prosecution Service was that the more I felt strongly, the more we showed our workings, the more people have confidence in what we're doing. And learning how you do that across an organisation was really important to me. But it is a two-way process because the other thing I learned at the Crown Prosecution Service, and it stayed with me, is if you really want to know how to fix the things in the organisation that aren't working, ask your staff and ask your junior staff. We had these 100 or so offices across England and Wales, and I'd visit each of them quite regularly, at least once a year. I'd try to get to once every other year, so I'd do about 50 a year, go out to these offices. And whatever the programme was for the day, the first thing I'd do is say, can I just have 20 minutes on my own with the most junior staff with no supervisors in the room? And it was so insightful. And I asked um, them two questions routinely. The first was, what's the biggest problem, challenge that you've got every day you do your job? And what's the workaround? And the second, equally instructive, I thought, was, when's the last time your manager said thank you to you? Brilliant. And it was such an insight into how you manage people, how you lead people. What is it that you felt those two questions gave you as information as a leader of the CPS? The first question, which is what's the problem and how you're going to fix it, is a real insight into what's going wrong and what what's the way. To, I'm, I'm a big believer in fixing things, particularly now I'm in politics. Um, what I can't stand is people who describe a problem very, very well. And there are lots of people who can do that. In politics, everybody does it all the time. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. You can have eloquent speeches about what the problem is. Yeah. And I want to know what's the solution. What, how do you fix this thing? I mean, in politics, it's it's the missing bit most of the time. And I got that from the staff because they they would if you're if there's something in the office that isn't working properly and it's not working every day. In the end, you find a way to fix it. You find something, a way to work around the problem. And so there's the what's the problem? How do we fix it? Was a really important part of my learning from that. The saying thank you was a real sense of how you value all members of the team. If you've got members of the team who are not even being thanked for the job they're doing, then you haven't got a very high-performing team, in my view, because in the end, uh, if people don't feel that their contribution is acknowledged, um, then the likelihood that they're going to you know, muck in and um, be high-performing is, is, is pretty low. So there's quite a lot to learn from that. I'm really interested in the fact that, you know, you clearly want to deeply understand people. You want to deeply understand problems. And you also, I guess, realise that, you know, things are nuanced. It's not this and that, black and white, A and B, right? Yet we live in a world where politics is totally not nuanced at all. It is (laughs) more polarising than ever before. So with all of your sort of natural instinct from having impact and driving change, how do you feel about, um, you know, the kind of um, school playground type 
prime minister's questions or going on um, like TV, political TV shows or news programs where it sometimes feels like the only aim for the journalist is to do a kind of gotcha, catch you out kind of moment, you know, like how much is a pint of milk type questions. Yeah. How, how does the modern political world sit with your kind of deep desire to actually have genuine impact for the right reasons? I really hate that side of politics. Yeah. Do we have to have it? Our system is set up as an adversarial system, if you like. If you Even the layout of the House of Commons, if you think about it, it's a sort of rectangular shape. What On one side, you've got all the benches of the government. On the other side, you've got all the benches of the opposition. So you're both staring at each other across a divide. If you stand at the dispatch box um, speaking in Parliament, it is a very interesting experience. It's obvious once I've said it, but until I did it, I didn't quite appreciate it. The moment you stand up at the dispatch box, almost every friendly face is now behind you. And you've got a wall of faces that are going to vehemently disagree with what you're saying. And it's a very, very tribal, divided way of doing things. There are other chambers, you know, other parliaments around the world that are horseshoe-shaped to avoid that. I have to say, coming in from outside of politics. I didn't come into politics till later in life when I'd done other things. I don't find it at all comfortable. I don't think it achieves very much. The best part of the week for me is when Prime Minister's Questions is over and I can get out of Parliament um, across the country. I was in Scotland earlier this week. That would be typical to go straight out to uh, see what is happening actually in the world outside of Parliament. Because my strong belief is outside of politics If there is a problem in an organisation, a team, something which you're leading, the instinct when something goes wrong or there's a problem to fix is to get people around the table and say, right, you know, what's the problem? How do we fix it? What's people's views on this? And let's move forward. In politics, the instinct is to say, we've got all the answers. They've got none of the answers. Um, Under us, everything be fine. Under them, everything's terrible. And I don't think it actually is a good way of driving forward the sort of change that we need. It also... It leads to a sort of short-term thinking. So instead of recognising that some things are going to take quite a long time to fix, there's this sort of sense that you can do everything within a five-year political cycle. And most of the time, the problems that we're actually confronting are going to take longer than that. But even when you're building teams now, I mean, you know, it's different if someone's an MP because you don't decide who is or isn't. But when you're deciding who is in your shadow cabinet, who do you want to work closely with? But actually, who are the non-MP members of staff that you're going to work with? Who do you want to hire? What are the questions you ask? What are the things that you look for? Who do you want around you? The people I want around me are people that can come to really sound judgments and I can totally trust them. One of my weaknesses, I guess, is getting to that point where I can trust someone's judgment. I think that when I first start working with someone... It takes a while until I trust their judgment. And therefore, the relationship is one where I'm slightly questioning, well, what's that about? You know, just walk me through that. Tell me the thinking behind this. And I'm sort of testing it, which must be quite hard. But once it gets to a point where I think this person knows what they're talking about, I trust their judgment, then it clicks into a much better place. But you can't trust them on one interview or, you know, one half-hour conversation before you hire them. So what are the things you ask to kind of think that person's got eventually what what you want from them so asking for an example of something they've done um, is always very good asking them what their detractors would say about them is always really really interesting in terms of where what people's real self uh, awareness i can't stand bullshitters 
Um, and trying to get to that point in an interview or get to that point quickly yeah. is really important for me. Can I try a Keir Starmer question out on you? Yep. What would your detractors say about you? Firstly, they might say it takes too long to get to a position of trust with people. And I can see that's really irritating. <laughs> the other, I'm trying to avoid what a lot of people do, which is to say, oh, they'd say I was too hard working or something. You know, <laughs> yeah, have people yeah. always turn around. I would actually go with Angela Rayner's um, observation of undersharing. I think she's right about that. And I think that sometimes that can lead to members of the team thinking you don't care enough. You're not yeah, yeah. showing enough emotion about this particular issue. Her observation, I think, I've reflected on that quite a lot because I think, I think she's probably right about that. Yeah, and that's an interesting one because that's an observation from someone that actually knows you. Yeah. So I think, even when they're wrong, I think we can be more accepting of observations from people who know us, care about us, and want the best for us. Where it gets really difficult is when the observations don't come from those people; they come from people with a with an agenda, and we know the way it works in this country with politics and opposition parties and the media and the public and social media and, you know, aggression online. And I'm not interested in the political angle to this. I'm really interested in the human angle to this. I wouldn't say you're an extrovert, right? No. So to put yourself out in the world like you do and to get the scrutiny and at times the criticism that you do, would you be happy to share with us actually how it really feels to be subjected to the scrutiny the criticism, the polarised opinions, and I guess at times the sense of unfairness that perhaps all politicians on every party at times feel. Yes, I do. And, and let's not make it party political because I think it is for politicians across the board because it's a, it's a funny old business. I mean, I often say to people, being leader of the Labour Party or leader of the opposition is a bit like being the England manager where everybody can do your job better than you. Everybody's got an opinion on your job that you should be doing. I wouldn't have played him at left back or don't know what that's all about. And my job is very much like this now. Everybody thinks they could do a better job and is not, you know, very happy to give advice. And there are ups and downs when things are going well. That sort of goes down a bit, if I'm honest. And then when they're not going so well, the heat is really, really on. And it's really hard when you've got lots of people saying pretty you know, negative stuff about what you're trying mm. to do and somehow you have to shut it out. How? I think you just, for me, it's about, um, I mean, giving this, almost like blinkering it. So get, being really clear, what am I trying to achieve? What is the goal? Let me just focus on that and push the rest of it mm. out. It's hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. And then there's the sheer resilience of just getting back up um, and doing it. You know, when, when, they, when you're having a bad time, everybody's on you um, and there's uh, a lot of noises off, just getting back up and doing it again can be really tough. What's been the hardest moment in the journey so far where, you, I mean, uh, where you've really thought, is this worth what I have to put myself through? Since I've been leader of the Labour Party, it was... 2021 when we just lost Hartlepool badly that really hurt as a team it was you know I'd been leader for just over a year things were beginning to go in the right direction and suddenly we had this major setback and it was like being punched in the stomach you know after the event I now think it's good that it hurt um it didn't feel too good at the time but you, you only hurt if it if you were so determined 
to have won. Yeah. Um, but that was really hard. And, you know, we had, I don't know, 20 um, journalists and photographers outside our front door all of the time for days on end. And so it feels like you can't get away from it, even in your own home. You're sort of indoors, but out the moment you step out, there's cameras, there's people, you know, uh, wanting to ask you questions. And, you know, we've got relatively young kids and that sense of there's nowhere to get away from this now. I found it very hard. I think um, a lot of politicians would have found it hard. And how you just shut that out as best you can and plough on, even though, you know, uh, lots of people are being pretty disparaging. And uh, how do you do that? Like, we, we had, I'm thinking, like, the way you described being, feeling like you've been punched. When we spoke to Tyson Fury on this podcast, he spoke around where his brain goes to when he's been hurt and he and he he thinks of all the occasions where he's been hurt in the past and how almost the evidence builds confidence that I can come back from this. How do you do it mentally to be able to keep going and keep forging ahead? Firstly, I think I um, sort of go in on myself in a, almost a protective crouch. I absorb it into myself and then begin the process of shutting out what I can shut out, reminding myself what it is I'm trying to achieve and therefore that I've got to overcome this. There's a very important part for me as well, which is reminding myself that what I'm trying to achieve is not about me. And that this is, it's always hard to get this over. I didn't grow up thinking I would be or particularly wanting to be an MP because something in my head, I was a working class background. My dad worked in a factory. My mum was a nurse. And I, there was an inhibitor in there somewhere that was saying, this isn't a job that someone like you is going to do, Kia. And therefore, I didn't have this lifelong dream of, being leader of the Labour Party or being Prime Minister. And therefore, I desperately want us to win the next general election because I know what we can do if we do win that general election. But that is about having a Labour government which will change the country for the better for millions of people. It's not about Keir Starmer walking through the door number 10. And that, I don't know whether that makes any sense at no, all. it does. Um, and um, therefore, this isn't so that one day there will be an image of me at number 10, it's because we need a Labour government. And I have to remind myself of that when I'm in that position to get out of it again, which is, right, take the heat, absorb it, push to one side what you can push to one side, focus on what you're trying to achieve, and remember it isn't about you. Because when you're being subject to that kind of criticism, it feels very personal. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's that. And then something works for me, my mum was very, very ill all of her life, really ill. Um, she had Stills disease, which is a disease that attacks your immune system when you're 11. And then she had steroids when she was a teenager, which helped with the Stills disease, but caused all sorts of awful problems later in life. So there came a point where she couldn't walk. She couldn't properly use her hands. She had to have her leg amputated. And she was in and out of hospital a lot in very, very, very serious situations. So... Um, I've been in um, intensive care and high dependency units with my mum many, many, many times when it's been touch and go. And she had this amazing courage um, and determination. She would never moan, even if you asked her in a sort of almost life and death situation, how are you? She'd always say, I'm all right, how are you? And she would always get back up. 
somehow should get back up and get back to her feet in the most impossible circumstances where sometimes when I looked at her in the high dependency unit, I couldn't see how she could ever get up again. Um, and interestingly, towards the end of her life, when she couldn't get back up again, it, it, it in the end, it, it destroyed her. And, and so when I'm in that moment, I just, I, there's a bit of me that thinks if, if my mum can get up, yeah. I can get up. Whatever the criticism, that's not the same as a life and death situation where my mum got back up. And so it's a, there's a long answer to a question, which is there are complicated things that I think happen that give you a sort of resilience to get through um, a difficult set of circumstances. They're the very low moments in politics. Um, there are many other times when it's simply not that bad. And the additional factor now is we've got children and it, how do I protect them through this is something I do worry about. Can we explore the relationship with your mum, though? Because as you're describing what sounds like a pretty harrowing and 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 troubling experience of being in those high dependency units, I'm reminded of, I remember reading many years ago, Jeremy Paxman wrote a book about our prime ministers and one of the trends that he spotted about them was that many of them had experienced childhood difficulties. Some had lost parents at a young age. Some had had parents that, had maybe had illnesses like yours. Those experiences form you. They form your views, your beliefs, your judgments. What did that do for you, seeing your mum struggle like that? The first thing is I say I agree with you that those things do influence um, how you are. If I'm honest with myself, I've only come latterly to understand quite how they've influenced me. And I think to some extent I'm still coming to terms with how they've influenced me. And I'd speak about my mum and my dad here. My mum, as I've described, very ill, but incredibly um, sort of courageous and determined, warm, loving, and always there for others, not moaning about herself, was an incredible example, an incredible example. That's given me a determination like nothing on earth nothing will get in the way of what we have to achieve. You know, being absolutely clear-eyed and focused on what is it for my mum, which was I'm going to get through this situation, I'm going to get up, and for her it's I'm going to walk again. I'm going to walk again. Where do you again. think her incredible strength came from? Uh, it was deep, deep, deep in her, um, in her being, this sense that I think it was probably, although I don't know, being told as an 11-year-old or just past 11, she was told... By the time you're 20, you won't walk, and you definitely won't have kids. I, I've never talked this through with her, and I've, obviously I can't now, but I've, I've just imagined that it triggered something in her, that something in her, no way. <laughs> um, and then it kept, and the steroids actually, because she, but for the steroids, she probably wouldn't have been walking, and um, I'm not sure whether she would have had kids, but it gave her that opportunity, and so that really drove her. Because my mum was so dependent physically on help the relationship between her and my dad was very intense he was an incredible man he was totally devoted and committed to her um learned everything about every aspect of her illness when she was in hospital he would be there the whole time he would you know sleep on any bench in the corridor of the hospital or whatever he wouldn't leave the hospital until she was coming home incredibly dedicated and everything was premised on mum and how we'd get mum through 
and I, these are things I'm thinking through more now, to be honest, because I reflect a lot on my relationship with my dad in recent years, more than I probably did in the previous 20 years before that, and um, not so much when he was alive. Gave me this incredible sense of duty and loyalty, because he was just, his duty was to look after my mum. You know, it was like the vow he took when he got married was just seared through him. It was his duty to do it, to be there, to absolutely be there. And he kept her alive on a number of occasions because he knew exactly what was going on and what exactly to do. So that duty, um, commitment, I think, and again, I'm piecing this together. I'm not pretending to be an expert on this, but that thing that Angela said about undersharing, where did that come from? A bit of me thinks it was because the intensity of that relationship about my mum's illness was such that there wasn't much emotional space for much else in our household. It was quite a small household, quite tightly in. And I don't know there was the emotional space for us to perhaps express ourselves in the way we might otherwise have done because everything was quite intense around making sure mum was all right. And I think that's obviously had an effect on me, maybe holding things in that I, if I was Andrew, I'd probably share more. And the other thing that is, again, I've reflected on much, much more in recent years is, and now I think I understand better, is that my dad worked in a factory. So is working on the factory floor, um, which is tough, really tough, um, physical work. But he was skilled as a toolmaker, highly skilled. But he felt all his life disrespected. I could tell the conversation he hated was the conversation with people sort of standing around with a coffee or a drink and saying, well, what do you do for a living? And someone said, well, I, I'm a civil servant. I'm a teacher. What do you do? I work in a factory. And there'd be a moment of quiet when he said that. And then the conversation would move on. And, and that moment for him, I think, made him feel really disrespected looked down that he felt people looked down on him and I think he's probably right and for me one of the reasons that respect is so important is that short period of silence that used to follow my dad saying what he did for a living and that's made me it's it's bound together my mom's sort of determination <laughs> with that sense of injustice that everybody should have respect and dignity but so much what you're saying kid like we can sit like as we're listening to it like that ties in with the fact that you were going as the most junior member as anyone said thank you to you and things like that i'm interested in why has it taken you so long to do this reflection that you can see the pieces of it that would have that predate it i don't know is the true answer to that but as i reflect on that i think it's because my sort of focus on outcomes, I've got to achieve this, I've got to win this case, I've got to do this, I've got to right. make sure that if we go into court, we've got to be fully prepared, we've got to get absolutely everything right, because I have a duty to the person that I'm representing um, to make sure that if we possibly can, we win their case. So it's very outcome, outcome, outcome. So I'm sort of running towards the outcome the whole time almost not wanting to or thinking that I need to reflect on what's the hard wiring here that's making you do this. 
Um, I never set out on this path. I didn't know what a lawyer was, particularly when I went to Leeds to study law. I'd never met a lawyer. I didn't. I was first in my family to go to university. Didn't know what a lawyer was, but sort of ploughed on towards the goal. Then through the cases, then through more strategic litigation into Northern Ireland and the Crown Prosecution Service, and and, and into politics. The same thing, which is a deep sense having worked five years running the prosecution service that I can't bring about the change I need to bring about unless I get onto a bigger stage which is politics where there are better ways of bringing around a a bigger outcome and whether this was my mum or not I don't know but running towards the goal meant I never reflected on the journey Mm. yeah so the questions you're asking me this is not a conversation I would have been having 10 years ago Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When did your parents pass away? So my mum passed away in 2015, just a few weeks before I was elected in as an MP, which was really sad. And then my dad passed away um, in 2018. You know, as you've said, you're you're a different person now to the person who, particularly when your mum was still alive, you know, in 2015, the person that would have maybe had different conversations then. We always ask at the end, you know, what advice would you give a teenage kid? I'm interested what you would want to say to your mum and dad if they were still here and they were able to hear you talking in this new kind of reflective, open and honest way. I think my mum knew what I thought of her and was a very warm woman. It's taken me much longer to work out my relationship with my dad because he was by nature more distant and so bound up with how he looked after my mum and almost a retreat from the social scene because he didn't like that question, what do you do for a living? Mm-hmm. That it was never that, it didn't feel close. And I don't regret very much in life. But the last time I saw my dad, he was in hospital, dying. And I walked away. And I knew he was going to die, just knew it. I knew I wouldn't see him again. 
And I didn't turn around and go back and tell him what I thought. And I should have done. And that, you know, is this advice for my teenage self? I don't know. It's hardwired advice for myself in relation to my relationship with our children. So I've tried to make sure that is completely different and that they, that we are together, we talk and we know each other. If you had to turn back, what would you have said to your dad? I would have said I love you. I'd have also said I'm proud of you. I'd have tried to close that gap that was so important to him in his life. He probably knew that already, I would imagine. I hope so. It's so interesting, isn't it, having these these types of conversations? Because I think life moves at such a pace. I mean, the life you've lived especially moves at such a pace. But I think it's only often when we stop and we realise that the great moments, the hard moments, the relationships, the things that were left unsaid, they're all such an important part of what, where we're at and, and how, we did, how we live, you know? I agree, and I think one of the hardest things in a job where you're in the public domain is that public-private. Yeah. Getting the balance right is very important. And so, for example, I'm very insistent that we will always stop work at six o'clock on a Friday and I will spend time with Vic, my wife, and our children. You know, most of the time, arguing about what takeaway we're going to get, see if we can get them off the iPads, I get all that. But it's just, I don't want to be that bloke in 10 years says, I wish I'd spent more time with my children. If you want to spend more time with your children, spend more time with your children. Um, and so there's that bit of the public-private, which is really hard to get right. But I'm determined. I actually, people think that it's a sign of strong leadership or that it's busy leadership, that if you can say my diary is so full I can't see my wife and children, that, that is somehow a description of a good leader. I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but the more intense moments are the more difficult ones. And just to give you where you're, the struggle with the public life and the private life really becomes quite acute. So when we had the leadership race for the Labour Party, my wife's mum had an awful accident and died. And as you can imagine, Vic, my wife, was in utter bits. And I, I found that really hard because I was trying to reach her. This was, in many ways for me... I'd lost my own parents, but to to try to reach someone who was losing and lost hers was really hard. And to go from that to you're on stage, I could almost feel the team saying, come on, kid, you know, you're on. Um, you've got to do the next hustings. You've got to go out there and, you know, the cameras will be on, the lights will be on, and you're expected to project confidence, etc. And that's quite hard to turn around in a short period of time, you know, taking a call just before you go on stage and then going on stage. Family and friendships are, are not about all the times you get together a cup of tea and a drink. Or that. That, that, that's all good. But the, the real test is, are, are you actually there when you need to be there? This would be the same for anybody doing a publicly facing role. The um, intensity of that is hard. I mean, Mark Drakeford, who's the Labour leader in Wales, Lost his wife in awful, mm. you know, in, in suddenly and unexpectedly, and I could, I can see the, the struggle of dealing with something private whilst having to be in public. So you chose to go into 
this pu- this public life as a politician at, at a relatively late age, like you said, you've you'd had a life, a rich life and successful life before it. And one of the things that I found fascinating in the books that the Obamas have done was the, where the, they've almost opened the doors into the conversations that took place before Barack Obama chose to go into public life. And he's been very explicit how his wife was quite dead against it because she could see the all of these inconveniences, for want of a better term, that came your way. I'm interested in the conversations that you would have had behind closed doors with Vic, your wife, and who else was involved in that before you made that decision to go and su- and be subject to some of these kind of experiences you've described? Yeah, I mean, there, there are many conversations along the way. I mean, Vic would have probably preferred I didn't do it because she would know what was involved in doing it and is brilliantly supportive. I think she, if she was sitting here, she would say, yeah, but I know you, I, I knew you were going to do it anyway. And therefore, you know, we had to talk through how you're going to do it because she would have known that that sort of focus on the outcome, focus on the goals would drive me through and almost no holding back in a way. But I think if she were asked, she would say she'd rather I'd done something else, um, having finished being director of public prosecutions. Um, And then, you know, my friends, I mean, one of my very, very good friends, and I've got really intense, strong friendships that I've had with people for a very, very long time, which actually helps as well, going back to the earlier discussion. So I've always got a retreat place. Um, if I'm, you know, in if I'm being attacked, etc., I've got strong, lifelong friendships with people who know me because of who I am. And where do they come from? From childhood, from school, school, uni, playing football, <laughs> and one of the people I've known from school, very, very good friend of mine. When I had the conversation with him about running for leadership of the Labour Party, he was dead against it. He said, "What's it going to do to your family? What's going? To, why? Why do you want that life?" You know how some people say, oh, what a great thing here, you know, fantastic, you'd be leader of Labour Party, you know, what a great thing to do, which it obviously is. He was he was against it. He just thought, you're going to put yourself through something which isn't worth it for your family and for, the, for your life. And that that's really lovely because he was just focusing on me mm. and not anything wider than that. Do you ever have regrets about it? No. And for all, you know, we've concentrated a lot on the some of the challenges of the job. But it is, you know, it is the privilege of my life to be leader of the Labour Party. To be leading that party is an incredible privilege. And to be leading that party in the hope that we might win an election and change the country for the better is fantastic, you know. And because we've focused on the challenges, the sense that, you know, it's only hardship. Of course, there's all of that. That'll be there. And I I readily acknowledge, by the way, that this is there for leaders in other political parties. Readily acknowledge that I think for women, it's more difficult than men in leadership positions, but politics in particular. So this isn't um, about me or about the Labour Party. But it is an incredible privilege and opportunity. If we win that election and change millions of lives for the better... What an incredible thing to be able to do and to restore politics as a force for good, which it can be and should be. And where does imposter syndrome sit in your life? Because the senior leaders and the high achievers and the artists and entrepreneurs that have sat on this podcast, to a man and woman, have told us that imposter syndrome exists. 
What's your relationship with it? Not very strong. I mean, I don't um, associate with the syndrome very much at all. I mean, I readily accept, as I did earlier, that um, this is not a you know, path of predestiny yeah. for me. <laughs> but I don't really, I mean, I, I don't have that imposter syndrome in the way that I know other, I mean, many people in politics and in other yeah. walks do have it to a level. What about doubt then? Because I think, you know, making a decision about what to have for dinner is one thing making a decision that could change or save or take lives as you have to when you're at the top of politics like they are huge decisions how are you a decision maker and i'd love to f find out how you come to those big decisions that when do you press the button firstly for better or for worse i've had to make tough decisions for a while now so it's not just as leader of the Labour party one of the examples i'd give of that is when I was a lawyer, I got very involved in doing death penalty cases. So this would be representing people who were on death row, usually in countries that are part of the Commonwealth, used to be colonies, uh, where there's death by hanging. And we worked intensively in some countries in the Caribbean, and I would go out there with teams to represent uh, some of the individuals on death row, sometimes groups of individuals. And to sit in a cell with somebody... <laughs> who is literally going to live or die according to whether you win the case, brings into very sharp focus difficult decisions. So I know what difficult decisions are, and I know they have to be taken. You cannot have a situation where you say, well, that's too difficult, I'm going to walk away from it. That isn't leadership. If you can't take the decision, you shouldn't be in that position. Um, and therefore, it's, it's, it's a necessary part of what you're doing. I've seen other people making decisions. When I was in Northern Ireland, I saw we were with the police service I was the human rights advisor. I was in the control room when there was a dangerous situation in Northern Ireland unfolding and there was various footage, camera footage of someone who had got a gun um, and was making their way towards other people and the fears for the worst. And I saw the senior officer going up and down with the monitors, the screens, the sound control, knowing that he had to make a decision whether to authorise the officers on the ground to use force, to use lethal force if necessary. The final decision whether to fire would be theirs, but he knew once he'd given that authorisation, that was a possible next step. And just to see and respect, he knew he had to make a decision. He knew he wanted to be totally informed, but he knew the consequences of his decision. What and did you learn from the way he operated in that moment? I learned that that's how you make decisions which is absorb 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 take it in but be clear you've got to make the decision and be clear what the consequences are but don't he didn't have the um luxury of shying away because yeah. if he shied away that meant the person who with the gun if they then use that gun might kill someone if you're in a leadership position where you've got to make tough decisions it's learning and appreciating there are tough consequences whichever way you go so can I ask about the end of days as a leader then? Because I'm conscious you're an Arsenal fan. <laughs> you're no, fast-forwarding. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but what I mean is like when you spoke about when you left the CPS, you, the, the, that your time was up there and you made a decision to go into politics. You, as an Arsenal fan, you lived through the reign of Wenger. Yeah. Where he was an incredible leader, but those last few years were soured by people feeling that his time was up and urging him to make a decision. What have you learned about the time to walk away from a leadership role when you feel that I've done what I can do, it's time to pass over? I think it's exactly that. I've done what I can do and I now need to go. 
I felt as a lawyer, I'd gone as far as I could as an individual lawyer, and I needed to change and get within an organisation. That's when I went to work with the police service in Northern Ireland. That took me on to being director of public prosecution. I mean, my time in Northern Ireland was really, really important to me because it, it, I developed a, a sense of changing things in a different way. So knowing when you should step back and go is really important when you've gone as far as you can in the job that you're doing. There's a slightly smaller version of what you've just put to me, which is really important as well, which is being able to get away from the job. So, I mean, you, this is triggered by you mentioning Arsenal. Um, I play football every week. Um, and still now? I'd still, since I'm 10, I played football. used to be twice a week, even sometimes three times, but now only once. And what's your position? Middle of midfield on the left-hand side, you know, shouting instructions, um, pretending I'm a box-to-box player. Um, those playing alongside me now would say that, <laughs> that that is just, you know, a theory of the past here. It's not the present anymore. But in that moment on the football pitch, nothing matters other than football. I'm playing now, I'm playing just with mates that I've known for a long time. There's the usual banter, but the politics and the decision and the stress, I mean, it's another way of getting through this difficult. It all goes to one side as you're just, there's a single pursuit, which is put that ball in the back of the net and win. I'm, I'm not one of these people that will say, oh, it's great to take part. Um, you know, if I'm playing football, I'm on the pitch to win. Um, that's the sole objective. But going to Arsenal is a different version of that because, you know, I go now um, with my boy, my girl comes sometimes, I meet really close friends I've known for a long time. And we all meet, chat before the game, walk down to the game, watch the game. All of that is a sort of ritual that's to do, you know, the actual watching the game is fantastic, but it's a small part of what this is all about, which is something that's given me great joy for all of my life and I absolutely you know it's central football to me in terms of that focus and that release it allows me space to get away from everything else that is the job um, and I think that's really important it's it's again why I, I would now say making time for my family which sounds so such an odd thing in a way to say is really important mm, actually yeah. having that space now, I don't wish to be trite because you talk about something as significant as your family, but as somebody that described that you're often in absorbing mode, what have you learned from your years of watching Arsenal and elite high-performance teams that you actually think, ah, I can translate that into my world. There's a metaphor there that, that lands quite well. If I take the current Arsenal team, which I think is fantastic, I'm biased, but I do think this is an incredible group of young players. What's incredible about them and why is that different? What can we learn from that? For me, it's two things. One, there isn't a standout star. So when Aubameyang played for Arsenal, outstanding star, everybody tried to let everything go through him. Now we've got a team where quite often, you know, we after the game, we'll all get together again. And the inevitable conversation, well, who was player, you know, who was player of the game? Quite often it's quite hard to say. And that is really good because the whole t- everybody's playing well in their positions. And that's really instructive because you're not relying on one or two standout stars. You've got a genuinely strong squad. I also think that with Arteta, you've got an incredible leader um, who has managed players in different ways to bring out the very... So every player in the Arsenal squad is probably playing better than I've ever seen them play before and better than they've played before. That's quite an extraordinary thing to bring about. If you take the particular example of Xhaka, who two or three seasons ago stormed off the pitch. I was there. 
I was with my boy and I said, he won't play for Arsenal again. And, you know, Arteta brought him around and now you'd have him first on your team sheet pretty well every week. So that that incredible leadership, probably going on, you probably wish you hadn't asked me about Arsenal now. No, go not on. at all. So it, it, it's a genuine team where everybody's doing better than they would probably do elsewhere or on their own. And incredible leadership from Arteta. And taking people on the journey, like when I now watch Arsenal, the song at the beginning, it feels like the Emirates is together, doesn't it? Yeah. And taking people on the journey is really, really important. The whole team needs to come on the journey with you. We're going to move on to our quick fire questions in a moment. But I before we fire. finish with I know. <laughs> before we finish with those, I think there is one question that we have to ask you and that I think the audience would want to be asked. And the challenge here is for you, as you have done very well actually for the last hour or so, not to get political with your answers. Um you, we talk about taking people on the journey, right? You want the nation to go on a journey with you, commit to the Labour Party, vote you into power. If they do that, what kind of prime minister would be leading this country? An inclusive determined Prime Minister who will look out for everyone in the country. Perfect. What are the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you would ideally buy into? The first is be there. You've got to be there. This is a guttural thing for me, yeah. I'm just describing earlier. This is particularly, obviously, people close to me, but you've got to be there. Yeah. All the rest of it is is as naught compared for, to being there. Uh, and that, that, that just to translate that into leadership very briefly, I know this is quick fire, but I felt this when I was leading the Crown Prosecution Service, certainly feel it as leader of the Labour Party. Um, as leader, you get the plaudits. So if the Crown Prosecution Service did a fantastic job we had some incredible prosecutions of major terrorist cases. And sometimes there were sort of awards, international awards, for the way in which we'd done the case. There was one terrible plot to try and bring down a number of aeroplanes at the same time across the Atlantic, which got thwarted and prosecuted. And my job was to receive the award on behalf of the organisation. But that comes with the be there bit, which is um, when things go wrong, you carry the can. And you carry the can for the whole organisation and you take responsibility. You don't go casting around for other people. So be there is a personal thing for me with friends and family, which is you, you, the test isn't whether you're phoning every day. The test is whether you're there when the chips are down and you really mm. need to be there. But there's a bit of leadership in that. Um, the second would be uh, don't bullshit. <laughs> I can't stand bullshit. Agreed. Uh, you know, it just uh, does my head in and there's too much of it um, around. Um, and I suppose the third would be um, respect. You've got to respect everybody in the team. Um, I think they'd be my three non-negotiables. What's your greatest strength and your biggest weakness? Strength, I suppose, is resilience and focus. Just being able to see what I'm trying to achieve and and go for it. There's many reasons why you're going to get knocked off course, but you've got to be utterly focused um, on it. In terms of weakness, I think the undersharing is a weakness. And I think the probably the time taken to really get to trust someone is a weakness, certainly a frustration. There are probably many others, but I'd say they were definitely weaknesses. What is the thing that you feel people get wrong most often or misunderstand most about you? 
some people think that the lack of sort of extrovert passion means that there isn't a massive deep passion to get things done and to get things changed. Um, you know, people say, well, I've heard so-and-so speak eloquently about this issue and they seem so passionate about it. And that is often true. But what I, my response to that is I've heard so many people pe- speak passionately about a problem, brilliantly about a problem, but I'm passionate about solving it. I don't, I don't want to keep describing the same problem over and over again. I know what the problem is. The passion I've got is I need to change, I need to solve that. And that's the sort of inner determined passion that isn't always carried in the same way as the sort of articulate expression of what the problem is. And I think some people feel that because um, I'm not you know, passionately describing the problem, that somehow there isn't the inner passion to fix the fundamentals. And they're totally, totally wrong about that. Anybody who works with me knows that. Um, and I think that's what Andrena was trying to get at when she was saying what she said about oversharing and undersharing. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? I think we've probably touched on it. It would probably be to walk back in on my dad. If, if I could take a second moment, I'd, one of the things that was a feature of my mum being very ill towards the end of her life when she couldn't speak and couldn't really move was that our children never got to know her. So if somehow I could take them back to see a version of her when she was at her best, I'd love to do that because they never really knew her. This was not her fault or theirs. They were just young and she couldn't speak at that stage. She couldn't feed herself or anything. And so all they knew was somebody who was, you know, very unable to do things. And I would have loved them to have known what she was really like, was this amazingly courageous, determined, funny, warm mum. What was her um, name? Jo. Jo. She sounds and, amazing. Um, if I could, yeah, if I could just take her back, take them back so they yeah. could meet my mum um, at her best or, you know, w- would be an amazingly uplifting moment and give them something that, in a sense, they don't really have now. Very nice. Final question. Kia is really your last message to leave people with something ringing in their ears your your golden rule if you like to living a high performance life if you have that feeling in the back of your mind that somehow the thing you want to do or achieve is not for you knock that thought out of your mind i say this to school children a lot because i think one of the biggest inhibitors one of the biggest things that holds back aspiration is that thing that somehow says to some young people, as it did to me, that that thing that you might want to do isn't really for someone like you. Get that out of your mind. And once that's out of your mind, you can go a long way. Brilliant. Thank you so much for the last hour and a bit. I think if nothing else, we've proven Angela wrong now you're no longer <laughs> you're no longer an undersharer that that was a you know an insight that I certainly have never seen before to you and the way you think and the way you've lived and the experiences you've had and people can't vote for someone that they don't know so I think this opportunity for people to get to know you is um is just really valuable for for the people of the country so thank you very much for the time Been a privilege. thank you both very much thank oh, you thank you yeah. Damien Jake. We do a lot of these and that's left me quite emotionally drained, you know. That it was really quite a deep and moving conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, massively. It was a real privilege to be sat in the room and 
to see a leader like him make himself so vulnerable and to speak so candidly and honestly, it was a, it was a rare privilege. And I hope that the approach to this will stop the, you know, classic, oh, you're getting political on the high performance podcast sort of comments and criticisms because, you know, that was a wholly not a political conversation. It was a human conversation. I think that, you know, effectively what Keir is engaged in, right, is a popularity contest. And that's what an election is. And I don't think that any of us can make a decision about who we want to lead our country unless we really know them. Of course, like we can understand and disagree or agree with policies and approaches and things, but you still want to know the kind of, like the true heart of the person that's making the decisions, right, at the heart of government. And I think that was the first time I've ever really seen Keir talking that way and open up like that. Yeah, he spoke about that in terms of his role in public life is very much about transparency. You don't have to agree with it, but this is where I stand on it and this is what I'm trying to achieve, this is my objective and this is how I want to get there. But I think there's that great quote in there from Kierkegaard of life has to be lived forward but only makes sense looking back. And I think when he'd looked back with us and showed us about that, like the sheer sense of injustice of seeing his mum struggling and therefore wanting to be resilient and make a difference, the, the duty of his dad and wanting just to be respected, that's a man that is being transparent with us and saying these influences have shaped my life and subsequently what I go on to do. Now, you don't have to agree with how he does it, but at least you know where he stands. Yeah, I absolutely, you know, completely agree. And I think that um, hopefully that will inform the people that listen to this podcast when they do have a decision to make about the person they want to uh, run the country next. You know, it will uh, it will help them make that decision. And I would just say that, you know, again, this is not a political conversation. And if the leader of the Conservative Party wants to come on here and talk about, you know, what he really feels and thinks and understands about the world, again, this is a we should offer that platform. You know, this is a non-judgmental platform where you just come and tell your truth. Yeah, would love that. I mean, if there was one message that we get across so often is empathy over opinion. Let's park our opinion, our political judgments, and I say, let's listen to the story of a man that's come from a, a loving family home that had its struggles and has reached high political office. That's a story that's worth listening to, and if we can empathise with the journey that shaped him, suddenly we maybe learn one or two things mm. along the way. And I tell you what, the one thing you feel in here is his energy for wanting to drive and enact change and win power and put the Labour Party back in government. Like, There's no part of you that when you see him talk about it in the flesh, questions either his motivation or his energy or his desire. Like, You just get this sense that every day he's waking up with this North Star and no matter how hard life can be, the energy comes from that. Every morning, I imagine he wakes up like batteries fully recharged. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's a really interesting point. Until you've said it, I hadn't thought it, but that's a man living a life on purpose, you know, and that's, and I think there's something about that that lots of our guests have told us about having that sense of a purpose of this is why I do it and being able to plug into that provides its own energy source. And Kier was a great example of it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate. Yeah, it's felt a privilege. Thank you, mate. So there you have it. 
Sir Keir Starmer on the High Performance Podcast with myself and Professor Damien Hughes. Uh, let me just remind you that you can also watch our interviews on YouTube as well as listen to them here wherever you get your podcasts. And I think this interview particularly is well worth watching. You you see the real emotion in the things that Sakia is saying and talking about. Can I just say a huge thanks to Kia for coming on the podcast, for sharing his thoughts with us. I think it's a really brave thing, actually, for a politician to do. You know, we all live in the era of the soundbite and the clickbait and the headline to get attention. And we all know that when someone comes on and opens up like Kia did, it opens them up to that kind of scrutiny and unfair treatment. But I would much rather we lived in a world where all of our politicians, regardless of the party, felt comfortable talking in that way. I think vulnerability is absolutely vital uh, for a healthy society. And as you heard there, Kia was truly vulnerable and very honest. And I really hope that regardless of which party you vote for, you understand now the value of these conversations that we're having on high performance, not just with politicians, but with entrepreneurs and sports stars and all kinds of leaders. This is just about understanding them more. And I think it's so important to lean into people. When you lean into people and understand them, I think it's great for them, but it's also really good for you. And it allows you to put understanding and empathy ahead of opinion. And with that in mind, you know, let this, uh, let this be uh, an invitation to Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister. Rishi, we would love you to come on and share in the way that Sir Keir Starmer has done with us here on High Performance. I think um, whether you're already in power or looking to be elected to power, of course, the policies and the politics is important, but what about the person? I think so often that gets forgotten about. And I love the fact we've given people an opportunity to understand Keir. Rishi, we would love to do the same for you. So we would love to make it happen. And really, apart from that, it's a big thanks to you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing this podcast among your community, for helping us to grow. Let me just say one last time, if you share this podcast, it's simple, it's quick, it's easy, it's free. It allows us to grow. If we grow, then we can attract more incredible names. And the bigger the names we attract, the bigger the impact we can have for you and the people around you. Please check out the back catalogue of almost 200 high-performance podcast interviews we've done so far. And we'll see you again soon for another episode of the High Performance Podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.